You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Your Brain on Facts book. Ask your local bookseller for it today. And Moxie LaBouche voiceover services. All of my listeners get 50% off. Email me, moxie at yourbrainonfacts.com. And for those persons curious about the reduce-reuse recycling of the scripts lately, hang on to the end of the show for a complete update. I am about to, or I am going to, die. Either expression is correct. These were the last words of 17th century French Jesuit priest, grammarian, and man after my own heart, Dominique Bonheur. Narrowly edged out by an 18th century French aristocrat who declared, I see you have made three spelling mistakes, as he read over his own death warrant. We assign a lot of significance to last words, hoping that we'll leave some deep and philosophical epitaph, or something funny like, what's this button do? But you may end up with last words like American author Henry David Thoreau, who simply said, Moose. Indian. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Many people think Irish playwright and poet Oscar Wilde's last words were, either this wallpaper goes or I do. That would be typical wild, but there are two small factual inaccuracies in this retelling. The actual quote is, This wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. Either it goes or I do. And he said that a few weeks before he died. Oscar Wilde's actual last words were a mumbled prayer. He did also say toward the end of his life, as he lay in bed sipping champagne, I am dying beyond my means. With about a third of the world being Christian, it's not surprising that God gets mentioned a fair amount. As the clock was winding down for one of the baddest bitches of Golden Age Hollywood, cancer-stricken Joan Crawford, her housekeeper began to pray aloud at her bedside. Crawford summoned her remaining strength and said, Don't you dare ask God to help me. A priest was at the bedside of François-Marie Auret, the philosopher and firebrand known as Voltaire. The priest implored him to renounce the devil. Voltaire considered his advice, but decided, this is no time to be making new enemies. German romantic Heinrich Hein took a different view as he lay dying of tertiary syphilis. God will forgive me, he said. That's his job. A quick tangent, while the undead have been in our collective fears and folklore since the caveman days, our modern interpretation of zombies is strongly influenced by the ravages of syphilis. Its body count is paltry when compared with things like the Black Death, but the five million people it killed in the 15th century alone definitely qualify it for epidemic status. Syphilis comes in distinct stages. Primary syphilis is characterized by painless sores on the genitals or mouth, which typically heal on their own. The second stage usually presents with a rash and fever. 
These resolve and the disease enters the latent stage, which can last for years. You're not infectious in the latent stage, but the bacteria may still be damaging your heart, bones, nerves, and brain. People would think they were no longer sick, which was just as well since there was no cure anyway. In tertiary syphilis, the third stage, the skin may be covered by growths that break down into lesions that spread unchecked. The disease can eat away bone and cause tremendous pain. Sufferers could also experience numbness and difficulty with motor functions, vision problems leading to blindness, and dementia, all of which combined left people shambling down cobblestone streets with their faces rotting off. If you bumped into such a person under a ruddy gas lamp on a cold London night, you'd probably be willing to believe they were a corpse who had gotten loose of its grave. We'll save the debate for the spread of syphilis, whether it started in North America or Europe, for another day. We have these last words because someone was there to hear and record them. Sadly, that wasn't the case with Albert Einstein, one of the greatest scientific minds in history. He was not alone in the room when he passed away, but he understandably spoke his final words in his mother tongue, and the nurse that was attending him didn't speak German. Perhaps his final wish was something along the lines of, don't let anyone steal my brain and keep it in their desk for years. As you can probably guess, that is what happened, but that is also a topic we'll cover on another show. Many people can feel the end is near and leave prophetic pronouncements behind. Reputed future seer and tabloid staple Nostradamus correctly forecast, Tomorrow, when the sun rises, I shall no longer be here. Similarly, the godfather of soul James Brown said, I'm going away tonight. Less a prediction than a timely assessment, noted English surgeon John Green declared, It stopped, after checking his own pulse. The OG of horror cinema, Alfred Hitchcock, left us with a non-prediction. One never knows the ending. One has to die to know exactly what happens after death, although Catholics have their hopes. Counterpoint to that are those who refute the seriousness of their situation. When former president and all-around son-of-a-birch Andrew Jackson was laid low, to the point that his right side was paralyzed and his daughter wanted to summon a doctor, he insisted... I need no doctor. I can overcome my troubles. Spoiler alert, he didn't. Likewise, singer Barry White said, Leave me alone. I'm fine. Actor Douglas Fairbanks said, I've never felt better. And Emperor of Debauchery Caligula simply shouted, I live, to name but a few examples. My favorite comes from a man called Mr. Organic, a healthy eating advocate, Jerome Rodale. He appeared on the Dick Cavett talk show in 1971, declaring that he'd never felt better in his life and he had decided to live to be 100. One or two minutes later, he proceeded to slump slightly in his seat while Cavett was interviewing the next guest. The two joked about him having nodded off, but he had actually died of a myocardial infarction. Frank Tightlips Gusenberg lived up to his name to an insane degree, when he was shot during the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, a police officer asked Gusenberg who shot him. In response, his final words were, Nobody shot me. Truly living up to his belief in not squealing, no matter what. 
The highest-ranking Union officer to die during the American Civil War, Major General Sedgwick, chastised his men for reacting to Confederate sharpshooter fire while they were placing artillery in preparation for what would be the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. I am ashamed of you dodging that way, he snapped. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Or he would have said that, but halfway through the word distance, a bullet struck him in the face. His end was closely paralleled by William Bucky O'Neill. Bucky's varied and successful career came to an end while serving as a captain in the Rough Riders during the Spanish-American War. As he walked and smoked in front of his men, in clear view of the enemy, a sergeant pleaded with him to take cover. O'Neill blew out a cloud of smoke, laughed, and reportedly replied, Sergeant, the Spanish bullet isn't made that will kill me. A moment later, he was shot dead. The reverse was true for World War I Lance Sergeant Hector Hugo Monroe. Put out that bloody cigarette, he barked at a fellow officer while in a trench, for fear of the smoke would give away their position. A German sniper heard him and picked him off. Two different musicians also made incorrect predictions about the dangers of firearms. It's okay. Gun's not loaded, see? Those were the last words of blues singer Johnny Ace. Some reports hold that he was playing Russian roulette, though a witness claims Ace was drunk and playing with the gun. One bullet was left in the gun of Chicago guitarist Terry Kath, who was pulling the trigger on empty chambers of a 38 revolver at a party. The trouble really began when he switched to a 9mm pistol. He showed off the empty magazine and said, Don't worry, it's not loaded. He hadn't cleared the chamber. It's an extreme example of the saying, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Ironic last words and car crashes go together like cat hair and clean clothes. The last known words of Ryan Dunn, one of the founding members of MTV's Jackass, was a text reading, stopping for a beer, be there when I can. More beer was the last thing Dunn needed. After crashing his car doing over 130 miles per hour, his blood alcohol was found to be 0.196, two and a half times over the legal limit. Speed kills, there's no arguing that. You would hope a person would learn that after filming six movies about driving entirely too quickly. Paul Walker, whose last recorded words were the sadly inaccurate, we will be back in five minutes, was doing 80 in a 45 when his car hit a telephone pole and two trees, while going around a corner, killing him and his passenger in a fiery crash. It's from the passenger and mechanic of Rebel Without a Cause star James Dean that we learn the actor's last words. A second or two before his Porsche Spider, nicknamed Little Bastard, crashed into a far more substantial Ford sedan, Dean said, That guy's gotta stop. He'll see us. The tragedy didn't end with the crash, though. Many people believe that Porsche 550 Spider to be irrefutably cursed. The wrecked carcass of Little Bastard was sold at auction for $2,500, and soon after it slipped off its trailer and broke a man's leg. The engine and drivetrain were sold to two different buyers, who later raced each other in cars containing the parts. One lost control and hit a tree, dying instantly. The other was seriously injured when his car suddenly locked up and rolled over, going into a turn. 
Two of the 550's tires, which had survived Dean's crash with no damage, blew out simultaneously on their new owner, causing his car to run off the road. The remains of Little Bastard caught the attention of two would-be thieves, one of whom tore his arm open trying to steal the steering wheel, while the other was injured trying to remove the blood-stained seat. Due to all the incidents involving the car, the owner lent it to a highway safety exhibit. The first exhibit was unsuccessful as the garage burned down. Mysteriously, the car suffered virtually no damage in the fire. It often takes tragic events to bring about change. Since that fateful day in 1963 when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, U.S. presidents no longer ride around in open-top cars, in addition to a number of other security enhancements. President Kennedy, Texas Governor John Connolly, and their wives, Jackie and Nellie, along with two Secret Service agents, rode in a convertible limousine through Dallas. You can't say the people of Dallas haven't given you a warm welcome, said Nellie Connolly. Kennedy replied, no, you certainly can't. Seconds before, bullets ripped through the cold November air. Other presidents have also given us memorable last words. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson had been compatriots before becoming political rivals. John Adams' last words were, Thomas Jefferson still survives. What Adams didn't know was that Jefferson had actually passed away a few hours earlier. They both died on the 4th of July. Millard Fillmore leaves us with, The nourishment is palatable, commenting on the soup he had just been fed. History doesn't record the last words of Presidents Pierce, Taft, Hoover, Ford, and Reagan, but we do have the last word of founding father Benjamin Franklin. A dying man can do nothing easy, Franklin said to his daughter, who suggested that if he lay on his side, he might be able to breathe easier. Some of the best documented last words in the modern era belong to those executed by the state. There's an immediate curiosity when you hear about an execution to know the person's last words, and if you're like me, also their last meal. The first person to be executed after the U.S. reinstated the death penalty in 1976, ending a 10-year moratorium, was Gary Gilmore, convicted of killing a motel manager during a robbery. Gilmore had wholly accepted his death sentence. Against his express wishes, he received several stays of execution through the efforts of the ACLU. The last of these occurred just hours before the rescheduled execution date of January 17th. The stay was overturned at 7.30 a.m. and the execution allowed to proceed as planned. At a Board of Pardons hearing in November of 76, Gilmore said, They always want to get in on the act. I don't think they've ever really done anything effective in their lives. I would like them all, including that group of reverends and rabbis from Salt Lake City, to butt out. This is my life, and this is my death. It's been sanctioned by the courts that I die, and I accept that. His last words were simple and to the point as he was positioned in front of the firing squad. Let's do it. If that phrase rings particularly familiar with you, it's probably because advertising executive Dan Wyden credits Gilmore's parting words as the inspiration for the world-famous Nike tagline, Just Do It. 
also sentenced to die by firing squad for robbery-turned-murder, Joe Hill's last word was, Fire! Preempting the executioner's ready-aim countdown. Cheeky. It's thought he wanted his last act to remind the squad who they really worked for. The people. Also accepting of his fate was child murderer Wesley Allen Dodd. I was once asked by somebody, I don't remember who, if there was any way sex offenders could be stopped. I said no. I was wrong. It's cold comfort, but there's something to be said for self-realization. At his request, Dodd's 1993 execution was performed by hanging, the first in the U.S. since 1965. I'll be in hell before you start breakfast, boys. Let her rip. Those were the last words of Tom Blackjack Ketchum, convicted murderer. He shouldn't have been in such a hurry. There was no slack in the rope. When his body dropped through the gallows and the rope went taut, he was decapitated. The job that hangman did would have irritated serial killer, rapist, arsonist, burglar Carl Pansrum. Without ever showing any sign of remorse for his crimes, he refused to appeal his sentence even threatening to kill members of human rights groups who attempted to appeal on his behalf. "'Hurry up, you Hoosier bastard!' he yelled at the executioner. "'I could kill ten men while you're fooling around!' Lavinia Fisher and her husband-slash-accomplice John were executed for their roles in a series of murders that took place at their tavern. While her husband was busy begging the crowd for forgiveness and putting all the blame on his wife, Lavinia took a slightly different tact. If any of you have a message for the devil, give it to me, for I am about to meet him. Lavinia then trumped her executioners by jumping off the scaffolding and hanging herself before they could do it. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything, yet. Together we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps... You're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Sitting on death row gives people a lot of time to plan their last words. 
James French was already serving a life sentence in an Ohio prison in 1966 when he killed his cellmate in an effort to convince the state to execute him. Strapped into the electric chair, he said, Hey, fellas, how about this for a headline for tomorrow's papers? French fries. His pun comes four decades or so after one George Apple was sentenced to electrocution for the murder of a New York City police officer. Well, gentlemen, he said, you're about to see a baked apple. Keeping the pun in Capital Punishment. Capital Punishment. Them without the capital get the punishment. So says John Speckenlink, a drifter convicted of killing a traveling companion, which he claimed was done in self-defense making him the first man put to death in Florida, specifically after the reinstatement of capital punishment. Similar in sentiment, Barbara Graham, drug addict and murderess, said, Good people are always so sure they're right. When she was strapped into the gas chamber, the executioner told her, Now take a deep breath and it won't bother you. To which she responded, How would you know? If you've got time to plan your last words, a carefully selected quote is a good way to go. Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh left behind a handwritten statement quoting the last lines of the poem Invictus by Sir William Ernest Henley. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. McVeigh elected not to speak in the death chamber. California's first execution in decades was Robert Alton Harris in 1992. You can be a king or a street sweeper, but everyone dances with the Grim Reaper. His last words seem to be a misquote from the film Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. If the quote is actually older than that, call us here in the studio or hit me up on the social media, Facebook and Instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts and Twitter at brainonfactspod. While you're at it, today is a great day to leave a review for the show or for the Your Brain on Facts book. This latest five-star review comes from Maria, who says, Do you like impressing your friends, family, and co-workers with facts that make you look cool and sound super smart and interesting? Have you ever had an awkward moment with someone in which you had nothing to talk about, so you sat there in uncomfortable silence? Are you meeting the family of the person you're dating and want to make a good impression? Well, this book will get you through these and any other boring or awkward situations. This book is filled with so many answers to questions you never thought to ask. Once you know the answers, you'll wonder how you went about your life without knowing. It is as addicting as the podcast itself. Thank you so much, Maria. Though I must question whether knowing the mating habits of spotted hyenas ever really makes one look cool. I guess it depends on who you're telling. And please do leave a review, even if you're not over the moon with the book. I've gotten a three-star and a four-star rating, but no review to go along with it so that I can see possible areas for improvement if, knock wood, book 2.0 ever happens. I did not get my SpaghettiOs. I got spaghetti. I want the press to know this. Before Thomas J. Grasso was executed by lethal injection for robbery-turned-murder, he took his last meal very seriously. His order, two dozen steamed mussels, two dozen steamed clams, a double cheeseburger from Burger King, barbecue spare ribs, two strawberry milkshakes, half a pumpkin pie with whipped cream, diced strawberries, and a 16-ounce can of SpaghettiOs with meatballs served at room temperature. 
For reasons unknown, the kitchen prepared him actual spaghetti. My original plan for this episode had been last words and last meals before the research took me in a different direction. But that doesn't mean a last meals episode wouldn't happen. After all, one man requested a single olive with pit, and another wanted a clump of dirt with grass on it. Last words can be an ideal platform for one last F.U., to show those in power that your spirit will not be broken. Giles Corey was among those accused in the infamous Salem witch trials, but he wasn't going to make it easy on them. According to colonial law, a person who refused to enter a plea could not be tried. Their remedy for this was piene forte et dure, the process where the accused was slowly pressed under rocks until a plea was entered. Giles Corey was placed between two wide boards, and stones were heaped upon him, over the course of two days. During that time, he spoke only one two-word phrase, repeatedly, until his last breath was squeezed from him. More weight. As deacon in Rome... Soon-to-be St. Lawrence was responsible for the material goods of the church and the distribution of alms to the poor. When he informed the prefect of Rome that he'd given all of the church's wealth to the poor, the prefect was so angry that he had a large gridiron prepared with hot coals beneath it and had Lawrence thrown on it. Legend holds that after some time, Lawrence cheerfully declared, I'm well done on this side, turn me over. The Vatican would declare him the patron saint of cooks, chefs, and comedians. You could also use your last words to leave a message of love or wisdom behind. The first name in reggae, Bob Marley, told his son Ziggy before he passed, Money can't buy life. Classic Star Trek star Leonard Nimoy left us with, A life is like a garden. Perfect moments can be had, but not preserved, except in memory. LLAP, which stands for Live Long and Prosper. His first autobiography had been called I Am Not Spock, but I guess he caved because the second one was called I Am Spock. In the spirit of factual accuracy, I should mention that that was posted on Twitter, but I am still counting it and it's my podcast, so come at me. According to the wife and son of my dad's favorite Beatle, George Harrison, his final words were, Love one another. I guess love is all you need. Many last words are about, or to, the love of a dying person's life. I'm going to be with Gloria now, said actor Jimmy Stewart before dying in 1997, referring to his wife of 44 years, who had passed three years earlier. Famed author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle died suddenly of a heart attack after turning to his wife and saying, You are wonderful. Writer T.S. Eliot was only able to whisper one word as he died. Valerie, the name of his wife. When actor-comedian and lovable curmudgeon W.C. Fields passed away in 1946, his last words were to his mistress. Goddamn the whole friggin' world and everyone in it but you, Carlotta. Likewise, Australian composer Percy Granger's dying words were to his wife Ella, You're the only one I like. As Jolton Joe DiMaggio lay dying, he said, I finally get to see Marilyn again. 
Though he and Marilyn Monroe had only been sometimes tumultuously married for less than one year, and she had passed away 37 years prior, he had never stopped loving her. During the last year of Monroe's life, she had an emotional collapse and her doctor had her committed to a mental hospital. During her four days there, she was subjected to forced baths and a complete loss of privacy and personal freedom. The more she sobbed and resisted, the more the doctors there thought she might actually be psychotic. Monroe's second husband, DiMaggio, rescued her by getting her released early over the objections of the staff. I'll give you five minutes to get her out here, said DiMaggio, or I will tear this place apart brick by brick. Another account holds that he shouted, Give me my wife. Not to sound basic, but hashtag couple goals. May we all find someone who loves us enough to bust us out of a mental hospital. The stars of Hollywood have given us so many bon mots. Humphrey Bogart declared at the end, I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. Oh, you young people act like old men. You're no fun said Josephine Baker as she left a party the night she would die of a stroke. When Bob Hope's wife asked where he'd like to be buried, he said, Surprise me. Well, this is no way to live, proclaimed comedy legend Groucho Marx at the end. Groucho's brother Leonard, better known as Chico, gave instructions to his wife as his last words. Remember, honey, don't forget what I told you. Put in my coffin a deck of cards, a golf club, and a pretty blonde. Stan Laurel of the iconic comedy duo Laurel and Hardy told his nurse, I wish I was skiing. She replied, Oh, Mr. Laurel, do you ski? No, he said, but I'd much rather be skiing than doing what I'm doing, shortly before he died. Somewhat more fun than Henry David Thoreau's two-word non-sequitur was actress Tallulah Bankhead's Cocaine Bourbon. Possibly a shopping list if you know anything about Tallulah Bankhead. Bankhead said a lot of memorable things in her life, like that she only threw two tantrums in a year, each being six months long, or that cocaine isn't habit-forming. I should know. I've been using it for years. I've had a hell of a lot of fun, and I've enjoyed every minute of it, said Errol Flynn just before dying of a heart attack in 1959 and being buried with six bottles of whiskey. Donald O'Connor was a singer, dancer, and actor who also hosted the Academy Awards in 1954. When he died at age 78, he joked, I'd like to thank the Academy for my Lifetime Achievement Award that I will eventually get. He still hasn't gotten it, though. But now that Leo's gotten his, maybe the internet can jump on the O'Connor bandwagon. Famous playwright Eugene O'Neill was born in a Broadway hotel in what is now Times Square. On his deathbed, he lay in a Boston hotel. His last words were, I knew it. I knew it. Born in a hotel room and goddammit dying in a hotel room. Charles Gussman was a beloved writer and announcer who catapulted Days of Our Lives to fame after writing its pilot episode. Upon his deathbed, he reportedly removed his oxygen mask and told his daughter, And now, a final word from our sponsor. Drummer Buddy Rich died after surgery in 1987. As he was being prepped for surgery, the nurse asked him, Is there anything you can't take? Rich replied, Yeah, country music. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. 
Though it turns out not everyone assigns a great deal of significance to last words. Karl Marx had a different take on the topic. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And stay safe. Okay, so about me re-recording these old scripts. As you know, I've been trying to start my own VO business, and I am applying myself to it fully, but that means it takes up a lot of hours in the day, and worse than that, a lot of the strength, vitality, lung capacity, you know, whatever I've got in relation to this chronic and still undiagnosed chest problem. I 100% love my podcast, but the VO business has the opportunity to actually bring in enough money to support me, so that kind of took top billing. So more talking also meant needing to up my meds, and then you risk overshooting it, and then now you're too stupid to get anything done. It was hard enough finding balance, and then I accidentally talked myself into a part-time job at the grocery store where I used to work, because as always happens in my life, my mouth was moving faster than my brain. But you have my sincere promise that next week will be a new episode. I just thought it was better to have something post rather than skipping weeks And I wanted to re-record older episodes where the audio wasn't as good, rather than just replaying popular episodes as I have done before. So I appreciate everybody sticking with me, and thank you for your patience, and thank you for the, uh, the email that I got asking this question. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.